1: In today's sermon, Elder Buddy Abernathy continues our study in the book of Revelation. You may recall last time that we had begun looking at the church at Sardis. This letter was written by Jesus through the penmanship of John to the church at Sardis in chapter 3 of Revelation. You may recall that this church had a name that it was alive, but in reality it was dead. Brother Buddy continues his look at what it means to be a dead church and also begins to look at. The remedy that's put forth by the Lord through the pen of John. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit.
2: In my Lord, my hope is high.
0: been looking at the uh, church of Sardis which is addressed by Jesus as recorded in Revelation chapter 3 in the first verse and before we get to the place where we left off last time I think we need to be reminded of what Jesus has said so far because what we're going to look out look at tonight is other instruction that he gave to this church now jesus had told this church you have a name that you're alive but you're dead Now, how would you like jesus to say that to zion church that you all have a name that you're alive but as far as i'm concerned you're dead That's about as harsh of a rebuke that you could give a church and especially if it was given by Jesus himself. Now to say a church is dead is to say that their vitality is lost. But I believe you can think of it this way in terms of how it's reflected. And that is, as the church members live their lives in the world, they appear no different than the world. I believe that's the idea when Jesus says, you're dead. He's saying that it's as if you're not even a church. Because you're living your life in the same way that the immoral and ungodly people are out there in the world. But nonetheless, they had a name that they lived and I believe that indicates that there was a time that this was a good, godly church that worshipped the Lord in spirit and in truth. But that was no longer the case. Now, many of the things that describe the church spiritually in the New Testament apply to the nation of Israel in a literal or physical sense in the Old Testament. Now normally I like to look at those Old Testament writers, especially in the prophets, and you can take some of the things that they said to the Lord's people then and you can apply them to the church. But I'm going to go in reverse tonight. I want us to Look at this situation at the church in Sardis by visualizing what happened to God's people in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Now you remember I think it was around 587 B.C. that the Babylonians came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And It was described by one of the writers as a place where the walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire. That's what one of the prophets said about it. But then notice in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter uh, 8 and verse 3. This is how Jerusalem was viewed and described in their good days, when they were honoring the Lord. He says, Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now that was in Jerusalem's good days. Or rather, a prophecy of their good days. But that's what's being described. It's Jerusalem in their good days. He said they'll be called a city of truth. Now, we like to make that claim, don't we? That we believe that as a church, we like to emphasize that we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We're, we're uncompromising On what we believe to be the truth of the gospel and the truth of our salvation. We want to be a city of truth. And then look also in Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 20. And this is the portion of scripture that Brother Lonnie was looking at Sunday night. In Isaiah 33 and verse 20 it says, Look upon Zion... The city of our solemnities, thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. Now think of that in a spiritual sense as you could visualize the church. He says it's the city of our solemnities. Not only is it a city of truth, it's a solemn place. The city of our solemnities. And he says, here's how you're going to see it. and Think about this spiritually with regard to the church. He says, it's a quiet habitation. In other words, there's calmness, there's peace, there's unity. He says, it's a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. You remember Jesus said upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither any of the cords thereof broken. We're not seeking to change the doctrine or to change the church as Jesus set it up. But now notice the contrast in Lamentations chapter 2. This is the scene after, as a result of their disobedience to God, that the enemy uh, came in and destroyed the city. And these are the observations of Jeremiah. Remember the name of the book is the Lamentations, the weepings, the mornings of uh, Jeremiah. And it says... In Lamentations 2.15, remember the scene, the walls are broken down, the gates are burnt with fire, there's confusion, there's hunger, it's just chaos and destruction. Lamentations 2.15, all that pass by clap their hands at thee, they hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty? The joy of the whole earth? See, Jerusalem had a name that they lived. But now they're dead. And people could walk by and see the destruction and knowing, as most people did, the... the, way God had blessed Jerusalem, it was the city of truth, it was the city of our solemnities, and now people pass by and wag their head. We still do that today. You know, we say, I just can't believe that. That's what they were doing. They walked by, wagged their head, and said, is this it? We could apply that today, couldn't we? If the church got in such a bad condition, and I've seen it in this condition, that people would say, you're saying that those people are the true church? You're saying that primitive Baptists have the true worship of God? People say, I just can't believe that's true. Look how, look at the state of decline that the church is in. They don't even have a pastor that lives among them. You can't understand what the pastor says when he preaches. The building's much more run down than their homes. I've seen all of this, you see. I grew up among this. And I've experienced this, that people would say, this is the city of truth. They wag their head. This is the city of truth. This is the perfection of beauty. This is the joy of the whole earth. So in a spiritual sense, that's what Jesus is saying about the church at Sardis. You remember the story I told you about the young man that joined a church that I was pastoring and I encouraged him to visit another church in the area because they had young people there and he went to church and then went out to eat with them or to do something with them after church. And his report to me when I asked him how it went, he said, they're no different than anybody else. See, that's what's being described here. Thou hast to name that you're alive, but you're dead. Now, I don't think that describes us. But as we've said many times, I believe preventive maintenance Amen. is very important. <laughs> and you may say, well brother buddy, that's that's sorta of hard the things you're saying. Well, just think how hard it would be if you were guilty of it. It's a lot easier to hear it knowing that it's not a problem right. than it is for the preacher to be pointing out what you're doing wrong. I'd rather Point out what you could do wrong, not what you're doing now. And then Jesus, in verses 2 and 3, which we covered last time, gives instruction to them. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now that was to the majority of the church. But tonight, look at verse 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis. As bad as it is, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, we know that as we as members of the church live out there in the world, that we're going to be among the few that are trying to honor the Lord. You know, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14 is familiar to us where Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for broad is the gate, and wide is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. And then he says, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Out there in the world, you're going to be among those that are traveling through the wide gate and the the broad way, the way everybody else in the world is going, and you'll, you'll feel like you're just in the small minority, but God forbid that it be that way in the church. That's what was going on here. Even in the church, Those that were faithful felt to be in the minute minority. They came to church and felt no different as far as the environment was concerned as they did out there in the world. But aren't you glad there's always some people that are faithful no matter what? Those of you that went to Bethlehem yesterday and heard... Elder Derek Kitchen's preach can recall some of the things he shared, and I know a good many of the details about what he was talking about, about how that he's seen the church grow and then decline. But he emphasized how important it is to be faithful. And aren't you thankful there's people like that? But notice here he says... Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, that have not defiled their garments. Now that expression, defiled their garments, means they're not contaminated with worldliness. You remember James said in chapter 1, verse 27, that pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, that we visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. In other words, as you live your life out there throughout the week, are there things about you that people see that do not separate you from the world? In other words, are they able to see that here's, the, here's, here's how you're talking Here's how you're behaving and you're approaching life the same way the world does. That's what it means to be spotted or to be contaminated or to be defiled. He's speaking of their garments as that which is being defiled, referring to their clothing. And obviously that's to be understood in a spiritual sense. And you know, Paul told us to put off the old man and put on the new. He said in Galatians that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now Christ was already in you. When you're born again, Christ is in you and He's the hope of glory. But when you're baptized, you say, I'm wearing Him. That's what you see when you look at me. You see the clothing I have on. That's what, what that's what you see first of all is how I'm dressed. And he says, when you've been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. But here at Sardis, there were people in the church, the majority had defiled their garments. When they went out there in the world, they were living no differently than those that had not been baptized and had not made a profession of faith. Their clothing looked the same. So that's why they were a dead church no influence no different than anybody else but notice this it doesn't matter how few there are that are walking in the right way even if it's only a few within the church notice what jesus says about these few that have not defiled their garments, he says, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now this isn't talking about heaven. Because he says, they're going to walk with me. See, that's here. Whenever you read about the word walk in the Bible, it's usually speaking of normal life. You know, we think of that scripture where they'll Uh, Mount up with wings of eagles. They'll run and not be weary. But the normal mode of life is they shall walk and not faint. It's good when we can mount up with wings of eagles. It's good when we can run and have spiritual enthusiasm and zeal. But the normal mode is walking. Just living a stable life that honors God. You know, there's a verse that describes Jesus this way. He went about doing good. Wouldn't that be a good thing for people to say of you? Well, I don't know much about what he believes, but I know he just goes about doing good. Treats people right, helps people. That's what's going to get people's attention Regardless of what doctrine you may believe. So what he means here when he says they'll walk with me in white. Is that they're going to enjoy and experience the fact that I have saved them and I have washed them. Now this should drive the point home. Can you enjoy your salvation when you're living in rebellion? I've tried it. It doesn't work, does it? You can't live in sin and enjoy the fact that Jesus washed away your sins and made you white as snow at the same time. When I live in sin and rebellion, I experience the chastisement of God and I'm not walking through life rejoicing in the fact that Jesus has made me whiter than snow. Though that be the truth, you can't enjoy that in disobedience. And see, what we experience here in obedience will be such a Full reality in heaven. Notice in Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, to the church at Sardis, Jesus referred to white garments. But in heaven, he talks about white robes. You know, robes—something you put on over your clothes. It's—it's it's a heavier, more substantial piece of clothing. You know, you put on your pajamas and you're cold, you put on this big robe. And that's how it's described in heaven. Notice this in Revelation 7:9. After this, I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb "...clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb." And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders, and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? In other words, who are they? Where did they come from? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, obviously, this is not teaching that Here's people that did something to be saved. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, here's people that their, their hope, their consolation, their all in all is that, they're, that they've been made white by the blood of the Lamb. And to say that they've washed their robes is to say they've laid hold on that. And in heaven, that is like a robe. <laughs> that white robe. But even here we can have a sense of wearing white raiment. I can't feel that way in disobedience. A dead church can't feel that way. But haven't we had a lot of meetings here where the gospel has been preached and, you know, we all talked about Brother Mike Ivey's sermon and how you were crying and rejoicing at the same time. That's what it means to be uh, arrayed in white is you're you're having that sense of, hey, I'm right with God. Jesus is my friend. He's not holding my sins against me. He sees me as blameless as a result of what Christ did for me. So even if there's only a few, doesn't matter how few there are, he said, they'll walk with me in white for they're worthy. And then he says, verse 5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. In other words, he's already talked about the few who hadn't defiled their garments. And now he says the same promise is to those that repent. He says... Not only are those that haven't defiled their garments going to walk with me in white, but he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, we want to spend the balance of our time considering that expression, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. I remember growing up, and most of my friends weren't primitive Baptists, and I would often hear the expression that you could lose your salvation and they would use this verse to say, your name can be blotted out of the book of life. In other words, you may, your name may be written in the Lamb's book of life today. But if you don't live the way you ought, it can be blotted out. And that word blot means to, to erase or to just you know rub it out. Like if you had... Uh, something with a spot on it, and you spray some cleaner and just clean it off that's the idea there to just remove it to erase it
1: due to the constraints of time we will stop the message here but please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message if you would like to subscribe to our website please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates if you have any questions please feel free to contact the church
0: For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.